your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. Laurel Hill Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. Join me for the next 20 minutes or so. Find out about one of our permanent residents, the 19th century polar explorer Elijah Kent Kane, and his amorous relationship with the spiritualist Maggie Fox. Who were the heroes of the mid-19th century? Who did men admire, women swoon over, and children aspire to be? There were no movie or television stars, as there was no film or television. There were no sports heroes. There was no professional baseball, football, basketball, or hockey. There were certainly no astronauts. There were no rock musicians. Newspapers and books told tales of soldiers and sailors, politicians and speechmakers, poets and philosophers. But the real astronauts of the mid-19th century were the explorers men who bravely faced the unknown in search of knowledge and adventure. As a young man, Elijah Kent Kane had an ambition for public recognition and a restless curiosity to see the world. Born in Philadelphia on February 3, 1820, Kane was named for his grandfather, Elijah Kane, who had moved to Philadelphia in 1801 from Albany, New York. His father was John Kinsink Kane, an American politician, attorney, and jurist, noted for his political affiliation with President Andrew Jackson, even writing speeches for him. His mother, Jane Duval Leeper, was the daughter of Thomas Leeper, merchant, American Revolutionary War patriot, and a founder of the Philadelphia City Troop. Leeper, who was the first American to construct a permanent working railway, is buried at Laurel Hill in Section H. The family initially lived on Walnut between 7th and 8th, and then on South 4th Street in what is now called Center City. Elijah was small of stature, only 38 pounds at age 8, and never more than 130 pounds in adulthood. But he was very athletic and adventurous as a child. His father pushed him toward Yale University, but he did not meet the requirement for classical languages and went instead to University of Virginia. In 1838, during his first year of college, Kane developed a bad case of rheumatic fever, leaving him in delicate health. His family doctor warned him to avoid strenuous activities, which could lead to an early death. In the fall of 1839, he apprenticed himself to Dr. William Harris of Philadelphia and graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School in March 1842. He may have studied medicine to understand his own illness. But Kane was not content to pass his life in a sedentary Philadelphia medical practice. He seemed convinced that his fate was to die young, and he became driven by a romantic desire to travel the world. Instead of opening a medical practice, he joined the United States Navy 
and probably through his father's political connections, secured a position as assistant surgeon for Massachusetts Congressman Caleb Cushing's diplomatic mission to China in 1843, following the Opium Wars. After crossing the Atlantic and Indian Oceans with stops in Madeira, Rio de Janeiro, Bombay, and Ceylon, the mission reached China. But Kane had little to do there, so he resigned his post with the embassy and spent the next two years visiting more of Asia, Europe, and Egypt before arriving back home in August 1846. He had visited five continents. He was 26 years old. After just nine months at home, he was ready to move on, especially when he found out that his girlfriend was pregnant. He paid her medical debts off and never had contact with her again. A few months later, he traveled to Washington and pleaded with President James K. Polk for a role in the Mexican War. Polk had to get a message to Commanding General Winfield Scott, so he tagged Kane for the job. Kane was wounded during a skirmish in Mexico, suffering a lance wound to his lower abdomen, but he recovered. When the war ended in 1848, he worked briefly for the United States Coastal Service, one of the most important scientific organizations in the antebellum era. Here, Kane learned how to combine his varied interests and his love of travel and adventure within an accepted methodologic, moral, and popular approach to science. The United States Survey of the Coast had been created in 1807 under President Thomas Jefferson and was led for its first 36 years by Ferdinand Hassler, buried at Laurel Hill in Section P. Professor Alexander Dallas Bacci, great-grandson of Benjamin Franklin, had become superintendent of what was then called the U.S. Coast Survey after Hassler's death in 1843. Now it is the U.S. National Geodetic Survey, part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration of the United States Department of Commerce. Kane next volunteered to be surgeon on an expedition that was being organized to sail to the Arctic. The United States Grinnell Expedition was a joint private United States Navy voyage in search of Sir John Franklin, the British polar explorer who had disappeared in the Arctic a few years earlier. This expedition, which lasted from May 1850 to October 1851, was not successful in finding Franklin, but it gave Kane an opportunity to write of his exploits. He emphasized the courage of American explorers who were advancing knowledge at the risk of their own lives. Before the 16-month expedition had even arrived home, Kane was nominated for membership in the American Philosophical Society, which had been founded by Benjamin Franklin and located at 104 South 5th Street in Philadelphia. Kane's first book after this adventure was a bestseller. He described strange things like polar bears, the midnight sun, perpetual darkness, icebergs, the northern lights. All of these seemed to defy the laws of nature. Capitalizing on the publicity, he went on the lecture circuit to talk on Arctic science. He was 31 years old. The other part of our story involves the two younger daughters of Mr. and Mrs. John Fox of Hydesville, New York, which is now part of Arcadia. Margareta, called Maggie, was born in 1833, and Catherine, called Katie, in 1837. In 1848, the two sisters discovered that they had powers to communicate with the dead through knockings and rappings. Spiritualism, communication with the dead, had developed in the United States in the 1840s, mostly in western and central New York, 
It was considered a religion. Their perceptive sister named Leah, who was 19 years older than Maggie, saw potential in her younger sibling's gifts and assumed the role of manager and promoter. Within two years, the sisters became renowned across the country as preeminent spiritualists. By the early 1850s, the number of believers of spiritualism in New York City alone had reached the tens of thousands. So the Fox sisters moved to New York City, where they conducted seances for some of the most prominent residents and visitors. One famous gathering included Horace Greeley, William Cullen Bryant, George Ripley, George Bancroft, and James Fenimore Cooper. Critics accused the sisters and other spiritualists of conjuring and ventriloquism, especially since books on parlor magic with titles such as The Whole Art of Conjuring Made Easy for Young Persons were becoming more widespread. Several debunkers decided that the sisters were making the raps by cracking their toes, a theory given the marvelous name Toeology. In Buffalo, a trio of doctors announced, quote, an instance has fallen under our observation which demonstrates the fact that noises precisely identified with the spiritual wrappings may be produced in the knee joint, end quote. The three Fox sisters, uh, Leah by now had also discovered that she was a medium, agreed in 1851 to be tested by these doctors. The Buffalo team said that no raps occurred when the sisters' knees were held or otherwise restricted. But the sisters countered that the atmosphere created by the doctors had been too hostile for spirits to make themselves known. The public apparently didn't care very much one way or the other, and the Fox sisters' notoriety continued to grow. In autumn of 1852, a famous man strolled into the Philadelphia Hotel where Maggie was holding a seance. Dr. Elijah Kent Kane, now age 32, and having become a successful author after his first Grinnell mission, almost instantly fell in love with Maggie. She was 19. Maggie initially showed little interest in her new suitor, despite his obvious ardor. He wrote many letters which have survived. In them, he sometimes teased her for her apparent indifference. Later, he chided her for her lack of feelings. I saw that you loved me, but not enough. Dear child, it was not in your nature. Soon his letters also overflowed with sexual desire. Is it any wonder that I long to look, only to look, at that dear little deceitful mouth of yours, to feel your hair tumbling over my cheeks. But Elijah and Maggie were of different social classes. If he wanted to marry her, then he somehow had to transform her into a more proper marriage prospect. He may also have recognized a soul like his own, searching for something different and adventurous. But, worst of all, Kane, a scientist, knew that Maggie was a con artist. Oh, how much I wish that you would quit this life of dreary sameness and suspected deceit. So before Cain set out on his next voyage, he convinced Maggie to give up spirit rapping and live in the Pennsylvania countryside under the supervision of his relatives, who would also provide her with an education. This was probably at Lapidia, the country estate of his uncle, George Greyleeper. Separated from both Cain and her family and from her audiences, Maggie was despondent until he returned. In May 1853, the second Grinnell expedition got underway, this time with Kane in command. But his ship became icebound at about 80 degrees north latitude, 
and he and the crew remained there for two winters. They ended up using much of their wooden ships for fuel, and finally, in order to avoid yet a third icebound year, they made their way 1,300 miles on foot over 83 days to the settled part of southern Greenland. There they were met by a rescue party that was sent to find them. Kane had managed to bring all but three of his men home alive. He had disappeared from the known world for two years and was essentially given up for dead when he re-emerged to tell tales of a wondrous place totally unfamiliar and unworldly to the average American. Now he was America's newest and greatest hero and heralded as a great scientist for his geographic discoveries. His second book, Arctic Explorations, sold close to 150,000 copies. At only 35 years of age, Kane seemed headed toward a great future. He embodied everything that America wished itself to be. But his 1855 reunification with Maggie was not what she expected. Kane asked Maggie to sign a document disclaiming their relationship. She did so. She was brokenhearted. But Kane, again indecisive, relented and tore the paper up. They resumed their old relationship. Still weak from his ordeals in the far north, Kane set sail again in the autumn of 1856, this time to England to meet with Sir John Franklin's widow. On his return voyage, too ill to continue, he disembarked in Havana, Cuba. Maggie wrote, I am not happy when you are away. Also knowing that he worried about her letters falling into his family's hands, she added, could I only see you, I would say much that I cannot write. She never had the chance. On February 16th, 1857, Elijah Kent Keene of Philadelphia died in Cuba at age 37. The next day, more than 200 American citizens in Havana met, quote, for the purpose of agreeing upon some public demonstration of respect to the memory of the intrepid Arctic navigator, end quote. On the morning of February 20th, a procession of from six to 800 people accompanied the body to the Plaza de Armas, where they were joined by representatives of the Havana government, members of various learned bodies, and a military band. The pageant then proceeded to the waterfront, where Kane's remains were put on a barge solemnly decorated for the occasion. Accompanied by Kane's mother and two brothers who attended him on his deathbed, the body was brought to the steamer Cahaba for transport back to the United States. It docked in New Orleans three days later. When Kane's remains arrived in the United States, word of his death spread throughout the country by telegraph. The first commercial U.S. telegraph company had been established in 1845. On the estate outside of Philadelphia, Maggie was devastated. In New Orleans, the body was carried to the city hall that lay in state overnight under an honor guard. The next day, the remains were taken by a military escort and placed on board the steamboat Woodruff for Louisville en route to Philadelphia. Between five and 7,000 spectators came to see this procession. Along the route and at the port, homes and businesses' flags were flown at half-mast, and on Lafayette Square, artillery fired at 15-minute intervals. As the Woodruff made its way up the Mississippi and Ohio rivers, it passed Cairo, Illinois on the morning of March 3rd, and spectators lined the banks of the river to watch the funeral procession pass. At Louisville, the body was carried amidst great fanfare to Mozart Hall, where it lay in state overnight. 
The next day, a committee from Cincinnati took charge of the body and brought it by steamboat to that city. All of this was accompanied by solemn speeches by members of special committees. The ceremonies were organized by America's elite male citizens, but newspapers consistently pointed out that the spectators who came to mourn Cain included the working class as well. As the corpse neared home, displays of mourning intensified. After a massive procession and viewing in Baltimore, Kane's body was placed on a train to Philadelphia and arrived on the morning of March 12th. His body was taken to Independence Hall, where it lay in state as thousands gathered outside and filed by in silence. After services at the Second Presbyterian Church at 7th and Arch, his body went up the Schuylkill River to rest in the family mausoleum at Laurel Hill Cemetery on a steep hillside near the river and close to the ferry dock. Thus, virtually any visitor to the cemetery would be obliged to pass by Dr. Kane's crypt as they entered the cemetery from the riverside. His funeral procession through the country was the largest of the 19th century until that of Abraham Lincoln from Washington, D.C. back to Illinois eight years later. It remains the second largest in American history. So what happened to Maggie? Well, more than eight years after the funeral of Elijah Kent Kane, a volume hit American bookshops called The Love Life of Dr. Kane. It claimed to contain private correspondence between the beloved Arctic explorer and the love of his life, Margareta Fox. The book told of a romance and a secret marriage between them. For the rest of her life, Maggie called herself Margareta Fox Kane. She swore that Kane, before leaving, had married her in a private ceremony and that he had left her an inheritance. Kane's family pressed to regain possession of his letters and in public denied it all. They claimed Kane had never felt anything for Maggie beyond fraternal affection, that a marriage had never taken place, that he owed her nothing. In a letter among Kane's papers at the American Philosophical Society, Maggie admitted her feelings to his brother. Quote, the private marriage you can think of as you please. To me, a private marriage is as disgraceful as to stand in another light, but our honorable engagement you can never deny, at least to me, end quote. The Kane family paid her a small annuity for a few years, and even that stopped. Was she truly a broken-hearted lover spurned by her hero's family, or was this yet another con? As Kane had wished, Maggie converted to Roman Catholicism and withdrew from spirit rapping, but not from the spirits. She fell on hard times, and she turned to alcohol as her solace. She denounced spiritualism and openly demonstrated how she could crack the joint of her big toe to create the rapping sounds. In 1887, 30 years after Kane's death, she testified before the Siebert Commission. Henry Siebert, a wealthy Philadelphia spiritualist who had died in 1883, had left money in his will for the scientific evaluation of spiritualism. He believed in it. The commission found fraud in every case they examined. Siebert's ashes are in an urn in Section D of Laurel Hill Cemetery within eyeshot of the gatehouse. Other members of the commission are also buried at Laurel Hill, including Dr. William Pepper, founder of the Free Library of Philadelphia, and Horace Howard Furness, brother of architect Frank Furness. Maggie died at age 60 in 1893. At one point during their relationship, Maggie and Elisha had visited the family crypt at Laurel Hill Cemetery, where she claims the explorer told her they would be buried together forever. 
she is buried in Brooklyn. Maggie Fox and Elijah Kent Kane may have been destined to be partners. Both were explorers of other worlds, one physical, one spiritual. Both were celebrities of antebellum America, although Maggie's fame would extend beyond the war also. But Elijah was a scientist and Maggie was a con artist. The two characteristics may have been irreconcilable. Although neither is well remembered today, they were among America's biggest celebrities in their day. Come to Laurel Hill soon and visit this great American explorer, Dr. Elijah Kent Kane, interred in a hillside crypt with many family members, including his famous father and brother. They are only a few feet from founding Father Charles Thompson, Secretary of the Continental Congress through its 15-year existence, and Louisa Knapp Curtis, first editor of the Ladies' Home Journal. And if you want to learn about another 19th century con artist, grifter, and pathological liar, check out laurelhillcemetery.blog for the story of Mabel Tinley, buried with her parents in Laurel Hill South, but with her name nowhere to be found. Next time on All Bones Considered, I'll tell you about three Easterners whose identities are forever connected to the Old West. Henry Derringer, whose name became permanently attached to the pocket pistol that he invented. Author Owen Wister, whose creation, The Virginian, is considered the first Western novel. And John Batterson Stetson, the man who invented and promoted the classic 10-gallon hat. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Ballakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of the more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. Find out more at www.thelaurelhillscemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill, and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. I use many sources to put together this podcast. Um, Three of them were by the same author, David Chapin. His uh, 1993 graduate thesis, Exploring Other Worlds, Margaret Fox, Elijah Kane, and the Antebellum Culture of Curiosity. He also wrote Science Weeps, Humanity Weeps, the World Weeps, America Mourns Elijah Kent Kane. That was published in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography in October 1999. And The Fox Sisters and the Performance of Mystery, which was 
published in New York History, Volume 81, Number 2, in April of 2000. Another useful writing was uh, Barbara Weisberg's Talking to the Dead, Kate and Maggie Fox and the Rise of Spiritualism from American Heritage Magazine, a 2005 edition. And finally, on the early life of Dr. Elijah Kent Kane, Heroic Ambition, written by Mark Metzler-Sawin, S-A-W-I-N. That was his Ph.D. thesis.